Welcome to season two of Talking PFAS. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I recommend that you have a listen to season one to catch up on some of the foundational chats we had about PFAS. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Before I introduce today's guest for the podcast, I just have a quick announcement. I'm delighted to say that Talking PFAS podcast is a finalist in the Australian Podcast Awards that will be held in May. And also thank you everyone for voting in the popular vote category. We finished in the top 50 at number 50. So thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for the emails. Most of all, thank you for listening. Today's episode is a conversation with Assistant Professor Andros Cardenas from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Cardenas has been the lead author of two PFAS studies, but the focus of today's conversation is his research published in 2018. The objective of the study was to determine the extent to which PFASs are associated with increases in weight and body size and evaluate whether a lifestyle intervention modifies this association. We found that PFASs in measuring blood are associated with weight gain. However, we see that exercise and diet, so this is a lifestyle intervention of exercise and diet, was able to attenuate this weight gain that is associated with this PFAS exposure. Here are some key facts from the World Health Organization regarding obesity. Obesity has reached epidemic proportions globally. Worldwide obesity has nearly tripled since 1975. In 2016, more than 1.9 billion adults, 18 years and older, were overweight. Of these, 650 million were obese. The World Health Organization says overweight and obesity are major risk factors for a number of chronic diseases, including diabetes, cardiovascular diseases and cancer. The importance of Dr. Cardenas' research is because PFASs are chemicals that are suspected endocrine disruptors. Dr. Cardenas made it clear in our discussion today, and you'll hear it later in this episode, that whilst he does not think that PFAS chemicals are causing an entire population to become obese, they may very well be contributing to the obesity epidemic. Now to today's interview, Dr. Cardenas. I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley. So I mostly study uh, environmental issues and environmental toxicants and study how these exposures throughout our life course influence our health. So most of my work is looking at prenatal exposures, so exposures during uh, pregnancy, and then looking at the epigenome or epigenetics of, of infants throughout development. My work looking at PFASs is actually in adults, and we have not yet studied epigenetics, but I think that's one of the next steps uh, in our research program to look at that. The research work that you've recently done, what would you describe that as? If it's not epigenetics, what is it? Yeah, so the research work that we've been doing with the PFASs in the adult cohort, uh, we can call it environmental epidemiology. So basically we're looking at health determinants uh, and how those are related to uh, environmental exposures like PFASs. So it's trying to link uh, or trying to associate, potentially test, whether these PFASs are associated with certain health outcomes uh, and certain health parameters in, in humans. So how long have you been studying PFASs? So my PFAS work is actually a little bit more recent just because uh, I think there's a lot of concern around PFASs. Uh, I started working on PFASs about three years ago when I started my postdoctoral training 
so for the last three years, we've been working with this adult cohort, uh, looking to see how the PFAS exposure or PFAS actual concentrations measured in their blood, uh, how that is associated with uh, health outcomes and health endpoints as well. You led this research, didn't you? Yeah, I was the lead author of the research. And then again, that was during my postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School. But I was working under the mentorship of Dr. Emily Ocken, who is a professor at Harvard Medical School. And could you describe the cohort that you've been working with? Who were they made up of? Yeah, so this cohort is actually a randomized clinical trial. It was not designed initially to test the effects of PFAS on health. It was actually designed to test whether a lifestyle intervention could potentially modify diabetes risk. Uh, But we capitalized or leveraged this existing data to actually measure PFAS in their blood. This prospective cohort study included 957 individuals who participated in the Diabetes Prevention Program trial from July 1996 to May 2001 and the Diabetes Prevention Program Outcomes Study conducted from September 2002 to January 2014. Participants were already pre-diabetic with relatively high BMI and blood glucose levels. The study was designed to test if PFASs were associated with obesity and diabetes among individuals with over 15 years of follow-up. For their research, they obtained de-identified participant data from the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases Repository. So it's an adult cohort, older adults, and most of them were overweight and, and obese at the start of the trial because they wanted to see if exercise and diet could potentially prevent diabetes progression, which it did. The initial grant was to look at PFAS concentration in the blood of these adults to see if that was related to one, weight changes over their life course. And the second big aim was to look at uh, diabetes or diabetes incidence to see how many people develop diabetes in relationship to these PFASs. Obesogens are a subclass of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs, that might predispose individuals to the development of obesity. The Endocrine Society state that the increases of human exposure to EDCs, endocrine-disrupting chemicals, parallels the rise in obesity rates in the United States and raises the possibility of a causal link between the two. An obesogen might be a chemical in the environment and might be natural synthetic, but a chemical that could influence your ability to either gain weight or, or perhaps retain that weight off that you have lost. So it's a chemical that might influence your ability to actually uh, maintain weight loss or actually might make you gain weight as well. There's a few suspect chemicals. Some of them have been shown to actually influence weight gain or, or a positive rise of how much uh, fat people accumulate and there's different mechanisms of action, but uh, PFASs are just suspected of estrogen. So we, we don't know yet, you know, there's not that many studies that have conclusively looked at this. So that was the novel piece of, of our study. What does adiposity mean? It's basically the amount of fat that adults have in their bodies. A way to think about this is just weight. That's one way that we measure adiposity. What was the question you were trying to answer with that research? 
So the question was whether these synthetical chemicals, which are the PFASs, whether they are associated with weight and body size in adults. And, and the novel piece of our research is that we measure PFASs at baseline, and then we ask the question whether those are associated with changes in weight and body size over time. So it's a, it's a prospective study, which is very important in science because, you know, when you measure adiposity at the same time as you measure PFASs, uh, that is constrained in the sense that one could be associated with the other one by other pathways. But when you try to answer the question whether the exposure was associated with the outcome later in life, um, you get rid of some of these confounding variables that might be able to explain the association. So, so this provides a higher level, um, a higher order of evidence. The Diabetes Prevention Program, or DPP trial, recruited participants from 27 clinical centres across the United States and randomly assigned them to three study arms. One, a lifestyle intervention group receiving intensive training in diet, physical activity and behaviour modification. Two, a pharmacological intervention group receiving metformin. And three, a placebo-treated control group. Participants assigned to the placebo and metformin arms of the trial receive standard information about diet and exercise, but no intensive or motivational counselling. Dr. Cardenas' study was restricted to individuals in the intensive lifestyle intervention and the placebo-treated control arm of the trial. We started this study with the hypothesis that these chemicals measured in your blood would be associated with increases in weight. That was the main hypothesis. What we observe is that, yes, this hypothesis is shown to be supported, at least by the data. So we have evidence that these PFASs are associated with weight gain. So adults were gaining more weight, the more concentration of PFAS they had in their blood. But in the arm of the trial where individuals were actually following a helpful diet and they had an exercise plan that was pretty intensive as well, there was no association. So basically their weight status was not determined by their PFAS levels in their blood. So there's some evidence there uh, in our conclusion that perhaps exercise and diet could potentially mitigate these obesogenic associations of these PFAS chemicals. But you still don't know why the PFAS makes you gain weight. Yeah, exactly. So there's a few hypotheses. This is more of a mechanistic question tried to answer how, you know, molecularly, what, what are PFASs doing to your body that make you gain more weight? There's a, a few hypotheses how these PFASs might be acting in your body, activating some receptors. So basically, they might be activating some pathways that are making your body gain more weight compared to individuals that have lower levels of PFASs. Were the interventions that were applied in this study things that people could maintain in life or were they unrealistic because the amount of exercise was 150 minutes wasn't it a week right so that's an excellent question whether this lifestyle intervention is sustainable and at least from the research that has been done and you can see it from this study it's perhaps not sustainable in the sense that yes people might be able to comply for let's say half a year if, if you are in constant contact with them but perhaps after that they might go back to their old lifestyle habits of, or perhaps they their old diet and perhaps not exercising as much. In the larger study, they still found that exercise and diet was very helpful uh, at preventing diabetes, even after the fact where individuals were regaining the weight. Concentrations of total PFAS and mean PFASs differed by sex, race, ethnicity, and educational level. 
the nature of that comparison is cross-sectional, right? So we're measuring their PFAS in their blood, and then we're seeing if there's differences by sex, race, and ethnicity. And, and it might be, you know, whether it's physiology or whether there's actually a difference in, in exposure routes, right? So whether females and males are doing something differently to be exposed to higher or lower levels of PFASs, uh, we don't know. It might be just a function of physiology, right? Just how the body is taking up the PFASs and getting rid of them. A lot of the socioeconomical variables uh, are hard to interpret for example education and income and race all of those things are kind of tied together the education how would you explain the significance of that i would explain it as a socioeconomical difference perhaps how people might be exposed to pfas might be dependent on their education which also drives their income right uh, their diet and source of water potentially might look different from someone that have a lower education a lower socioeconomic status and, and income as well Dr. Cardenas says the endocrine society is well respected in the US as a scientific society. And he says that endocrinologists have now shifted their attention to also include environmental chemicals. The endocrine society have a scientific statement on obesity. This is what they say. Obesity is among the most common and costly chronic disorders worldwide. Estimates suggest that in the United States, obesity affects one-third of adults, accounts for up to one-third of total mortality, is concentrated among lower-income groups, and increasingly affects children as well as adults. That beyond diet, environmental factors ranging from socioeconomic status to chemical exposures to sedentary lifestyle can confer obesity risk. So one of the things to remember about, you know, the concern about exposure is that it's, it's very difficult to know. The, the reason why it's difficult to know where, where the PFAS is coming from is because these compounds have such a long half-life. So this is basically the time that it takes for the body to clear half of the concentration that was who someone was exposed to. Some of these half-lives are anywhere between two to sometimes even nine years have been estimated. So there's this big consensus, at least, that, that we know diet is, is probably one of the major sources of exposure. And one of the leading sources might be water, right, contaminated water. It takes a long time to clear these PFASs. So let's say someone, for some reason, was exposed to a lot of PFAS from the drinking water from, from a period of time where they lived somewhere uh, in a site that was contaminated or for some reason their water was contaminated. These PFASs will still be in their blood at a pretty good concentration, even a few years after the exposure. You know, when you talk about TDIs and things, you haven't gone into that. But when you talk about tolerable daily intakes, people can't control this because they don't know where their food's coming from. They don't know if there's PFAS in the meat or the seafood that they're eating. Right. And you're correct. The individual level to control your, your exposure is difficult. What we have learned from, from public health interventions, for example, you know, lead was a big issue in the United States and throughout the world. And what we know works is some of these policy changes, right, like banning lead from gasoline, perhaps, you know, banning some of these PFASs from being used in, in industrial, that might have a larger impact at the population level as opposed to one single individual trying to prevent their exposures that, particularly for these PFASs, because they are so prevalent in consumer products, in food, is is so hard to try to avoid this 
at, at the individual level. So, so what we know from history, at least, is that policy changes uh, uh, that go- the governments can make, and even like companies can take decisions of of facing out these PFASs. But even then, you know, some of the companies have taken steps, like 3M, are banning some of the PFAS chemistry, but we'll still have these chemicals. One of my colleagues calls them forever chemicals because they'll probably be around forever. They're in the food chain, they're in the water, they're in the soil, and even when you see some of the ecological sampling that has been going on, you know, you, you see PFASs showing up in wildlife far away from industrialized sites. So, so you know, we know, you know, what that polar bear is, there's, there's no industrial sources of PFASs, but they're being transported. There's a global transport that might happen through the water and through, through the air that is affecting pretty much every single corner of the earth. That's right. We know it's in the food chain, so we could all be eating it in the food, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, one of the biggest sources, at least in food, that people have found is seafood or, or fish and other seafood. That's one of the biggest predictors of PFAS in, in their blood. So we know that fish appear to be accumulating PFASs and, and individuals that eat fish tend to get these PFASs in their bodies as well. It's quite concerning when you think that we have no idea the fish that we're eating, if there's PFAS in it or not. Right, that's correct. And I think, you know, the guidelines have not changed. We know that fish has a lot of nutritional values. It has some of the omega-3 fatty acids that are difficult to get from other sources in the diet. But this is very similar to the mercury argument. So we also know that fish has mercury, but we also know that fish, it adds a lot of nutritional value to our diet. So I think that the benefits might outweigh the risk in terms of the mercury discussion. You know, that might depend, right? If you live in a site that is very contaminated, you you might want to think about ways to try to avoid fish from that site and, and perhaps replace it with fish that has lower levels. But then again, there's very little data on this. We we don't really have a grasp of whether certain types of fish may accumulate more than others. Um, there still has to be um, research. Should our meat and chicken and seafood be tested regularly? Uh, you know, that's a good question. And I think that's a uh, cost effectiveness, right? So, you know, it's probably very costly and how effective is going to be at preventing PFAS. We know there's PFAS in fish, you know, or are we going to be testing every single fish that we eat that probably becomes cost prohibited? So I think, you know, these big public health approaches are trying to reduce in at least the major sources of exposure. And, you know, for example, if there's a lake that is highly contaminated, then an advisory can be issued, perhaps not to eat fish from the lake or, or something to that end. So I think these approaches are trying to capture the most of the population at the policy level are the way to go. Here in the United States, we have the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. So this is something that they do every year. Uh, and they try to take a representative sample of the entire country and they do some biomonitoring. So basically they're trying to monitor things like blood pressure and glucose and other parameters. But along that, they also monitor the uh, do, do biomonitoring. So they're looking at environmental exposures. PFOS and PFOA have been declining uh, in serum levels at the population level. PFHX also has been declining a little bit. We don't know if those levels take into account people that are living near contaminated areas either. Right. So that might be the issue, right? So there might be not represented in that survey. They sample by how dense the population is, right? So you have a lot of individuals from areas that are highly populated and perhaps maybe a few or not that many from an area that might not be populated, but that might be the area that has contamination. So so yeah, you're right. It's, it's hard to tell. This, this just kind of gives you averages across the population. What's the average PFAS levels for the 
American population. They're around the 20, 25 marks. At least that was back in 1999, 2000. So back to your research. Could you just describe what your other study was on PFAS, what that study was looking at again? Yeah, so we initially started the study to look at, you know, how are PFASs cross-sectionally? So when I say cross-sectionally is measurements that were taken at the same time related to glucose, like insulin resistance or beta cell function, how your body is able to regulate glucose levels or glucose homeostasis. Uh, so basically, we looked cross-sectionally at the same time, how are PFAS associated at the same time with these measurements? Uh, and we saw several associations with insulin resistance and glycolated hemoglobin, which is a, a measurement of how elevated the glucose has been for a long time. The problem with this initial pass of to the data is that when you look at something at the same time, uh, you don't know whether X causes Y or Y is causing X, right? So we don't know whether PFAS is leading to higher insulin resistance or whether higher insulin resistance might lead to higher PFAS. So there's a lot of chance for confounding, that's what we call. So this is why this prospective studies, so basically measuring the exposure and then looking at the outcome later in life uh, are really important to try to tease out these relationships. What were you able to confirm? Yeah, so the first study, at least, we were able to confirm what some others have reported before. That was that PFASs appeared to be associated with markers of insulin secretion and beta cell function. So basically, they following this hypothesis that they might be obesogenic and potentially cause diabetes, right? So that's the hypothesis that we're working under. And so we see associations. The associations were small, so they were not huge, but the associations were certainly there. Uh, and then we followed up that with the investigation over 15 years. And that's what you did in the second study. Right, and that's what we did on the second study. Uh, the second study was centered around weight. We did see that PFASs were prospectively associated with weight gain, so people were gaining more weight if they have higher PFAS in their blood. But the interesting part of the second study is that because we nested this study within a bigger, larger study of losing weight, we saw that individuals that did the exercise regimen and did the diet were protected against the effect of these PFASs. It was only in the placebo group, so the placebo that only received recommendations kind of saw this weight gain relative to higher levels of PFAS in their blood. But when they stopped their interventions, their weight came back. Yeah, their weight came back. So this is something that was related to the original study, right? And, and this is known that people perhaps don't adhere to these long-term lifestyle changes. But even when their weight came back, the PFAS didn't make them gain more weight. It only made people gain more weight in the placebo group, so individuals that were not exercising initially and perhaps not dieting either. Okay. Now, I interviewed a researcher in Australia from the Australian National University who's doing the government-funded PFAS health study, and he was talking about a lot of medical literature has gone down in quality, and there's been a breakdown in medical literature, he said. Could you please tell me about the publications that your literature is in? The both of these journals are peer-reviewed journals, and they're respected. The first journal was the Environmental Health Perspectives Journal, which is a high-impact journal for my field in environmental health sciences. And the, the second paper was published in JAMA Network Open, which is uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is also a very well-respected journal. And I'll put a link to both of the research papers by Dr. Cardenas in the show notes. But your colleague is right. The person that you interview nowadays, there's a lot of predatory journals that people are able to publish a lot of science that perhaps is not peer review, meaning that other scientists didn't look at it and were able to judge the quality and validity of, of the data either. 
what would be your response if anyone said that your work could have been influenced by receiving government grants? That's the nice thing about working in academia, that we work completely independent of the funding, meaning that even the NIH is impartial, right? So they're not funded to industry or anything. We did not receive any industry funding, but the funding that we got was from the government. Dr. Cardenas received some funding for his research from the National Institute of Health, the NIH. And the government had nothing to do with analysis, reporting or drafting of the manuscript. Did they want to review it before it was published? No, they did not, because we had colleagues from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They do review the manuscript. They want to make sure that we don't make any outrageous claims, but the manuscript was unchanged in our findings. Okay, what has the response been amongst your colleagues, amongst the industry? Yeah, people are really interested in our study, mostly because of the design, right? So we have the big advantage that we have prospective data. Basically, we measured exposure and then we are looking at changes over many, many years into the future. And and that was due to the design of the study. So people are pretty interested in the study. At least the weight gain paper got quite a bit of interest and also has been supported. But there's another group that published a similar study in which individuals died and then they they measure PFASs and they observe very similar to us that PFAS was related to weight gain after individuals stopped their diet. And I'll put a link to that research article in the show notes. I think this is also adding to the body of the literature, right? We found that PFASs in measuring blood are associated with weight gain. However, we see that exercise and diet, so this is a lifestyle intervention of exercise and diet, was able to attenuate this weight gain that is associated with uh, with this PFAS exposure. Attenuation means that the association went away, yeah. So you're confident in those findings? Yeah, we're fairly confident that there's an association. Uh, whether that's causal, there has to be more animal literature, right? And, and that's very difficult to do. And very detailed investigations that sometimes takes years to, to happen, right? <laughs> I cannot say that my study will confirm that PFAS make you gain weight, but at least now there's two prospective studies that are consistently showing that uh, these PFASs are related to weight gain. Australian government organised for an expert health panel report. I don't know if you've seen it, but basically they looked at diabetes, glycemic control and metabolic syndrome. What I'd like to just read to you is what their advice to the minister was, the health minister of Australia. Consistent associations of PFAS with diabetes or metabolic syndrome have not generally been observed. The most concerning signals are for diabetes mortality, but not diabetes incidence, and gestational diabetes, but these might be explained by confounding, by kidney function. The known biological effects of PFAS on metabolism do not suggest this is a likely effect of PFAS. So your response to that? Yeah, I think probably given the literature that was cited in that report, uh, because I'm familiar with that literature, their conclusion is sound because a lot of the studies were cross-sectional in nature. There's potential for confounding, which there's always is potential for confounding in these human studies that are not controlled, right? Because you cannot randomize people to be exposed to PFAS. That would be unethical. Uh, So this is the best we can do. You know, like I mentioned, that diet trial that showed the same association as us was one of the first ones to have this prospective data that wasn't cross-sectional. And now we have our data as well that is showing associations with weight gain and these metabolic traits as well. But is that a fair statement now or do you think there definitely needs to be further research given your findings? 
Yeah, I believe there has to be further research. Uh, given our findings and the findings of our colleagues, I think that strengthened the, the potential for it. But like as, as I mentioned, the bar for, for evidence is pretty high. So therefore, we must have animal studies. We also have to have in vitro studies showing potential mechanisms. Uh, and we also have to have high-quality epidemiological studies. So all three of these things will happen. I think what our study did, in addition to the new study of our colleagues too, that is prospective in nature, is adding to the evidence. And perhaps by the time that review was conducted, uh, they, they didn't have access to these studies because they were just published last year. Do you think your study changes what that statement says? Uh, I believe it will add to it. I don't think it will completely change it. Right now, they, if they say there's insufficient evidence, perhaps if they were to review the literature in, you know, in a couple of years, that statement might change to moderate evidence. One other one that they said, talking about obesity, overweight and BMI. So the advice to the health minister on obesity and overweight, an association of PFAS with excessive weight gain has been observed in some studies, but the relationship is conflicting across studies and poorly characterised Evidence to date does not establish whether or not PFAS exposure is causally related to increased weight gain in any age group, but if there is a causal link, then any weight gain is likely to be small. What's your thoughts about that one? Yeah, I think they're correct in saying that if there's a causal link, it might be small. I, I agree with that statement, right, because, you know, there's an obesity epidemic that is true. But it is likely to be multifactorial. You know, I don't think PFASs are driving the entire population to become obese, uh, but they might be very well contributing. It might be one of the contributing factors um, to the obesity epidemic. Whenever we're talking about a causal link, we're talking about something truly driving the other. So truly PFAS driving obesity. When we've found a study that talks about an association, that's where we say PFAS may have an effect on weight gain. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, I believe so. I think that's the cautionary statement to use. And, you know, the problem is that in order to generate this very causal evidence, you need an experimental design, right? So the ideal study would be assigning people to consume PFAS and then assigning people to consume zero PFAS. But that study will be impossible to conduct, right? It will be unethical to do and no one would sign up for that study, right? In Australia, they say there's no consistent evidence of health effects from PFAS. Would that be a fair statement? There's plenty of epidemiological evidence now indicating, particularly for cholesterol and triglycerides, there's mounting evidence that these PFASs are related. And, and, and then again, for the human studies, we can only say that they're associated. So I think there's more mounting evidence. And, you know, some of these compounds didn't start to be studied since like early 2000. So we only had about 18 years to, to look at this issue. And I think the more time it passes, the, the more evidence it will accumulate. And we, we might be able to make a more educated conclusion for that matter as well. Dr. Cardenas' research paper that we've been discussing today says, the hypothesis of environmental chemicals acting as obesogens, not by directly causing obesity, but rather by modifying sensitivity to other risk factors for obesity, was initially proposed by researchers Grun and Blumberg. There is a dearth of data, both epidemiological or experimental, on whether PFASs in the presence of other risk factors for adiposity, act like obesogens, and whether reduction of these other risk factors through interventions may reduce the obesogenic effects of PFASs. 
if now in this, you know, in the 21st century where we have these very caloric rich diets, right? Like all these fast food restaurants where you can easily get, you know, 1500 calories in one meal or even 2000 calories in one meal, very large meal. The question becomes whether these chemicals are actually aiding in this excess caloric intake, aiding in making people gain more weight by either storing more fat or reducing their metabolism. Uh, there's many potential pathways where that can may occur, but this hypothesis of isogenic chemicals might not be exactly that the chemical is causing the person to gain weight, is in the presence of other risk factors like a high caloric diet or poor, you know, low or very low exercise. Do you think people would dismiss your findings because of those other influences on weight gain? I don't think so. I think, you know, nowadays we are realizing things like cancer, obesity, all of these things, we're calling them complex diseases. And the reason why they're complex is because they're multifactorial. There are multiple levels that are influencing your probability of developing these diseases or gaining weight. So I think people understand now that there's complexity to everything. Nothing is, is as simple as X is causing Y. And then if we remove X, you know, everything's going to be okay. There's multiple factors that are going to contribute to someone gaining weight, right? It's not that the person doesn't just exercise or the person consumes too many calories. It's, it's probably uh, a combination of multiple, multiple things. So whether these environmental chemicals is, is another potential contributor, I think that's, that's where our, our research is leading. The Endocrine Society also say, at its most basic level, the causes of obesity seem simple. Calories are consumed in amounts that exceed ongoing energy expenditure. Based largely on this concept, most people have historically perceived obesity as the result of negative personal traits such as gluttony, sloth, self-indulgence, laziness and lack of willpower. However, growing evidence indicates that obesity pathogenesis involves processes far more complex than the passive accumulation of excess calories. It is this complexity that lies at the heart of why obesity is so difficult to treat. They also state that links between EDC exposure and obesity risk are a focus of ongoing research with many key questions remaining unanswered. What's next for you when it comes to PFAS research? I started a new position as an assistant professor. I was doing a postdoctoral uh, position before. So this is a hectic time in my life, but I would like to continue within this study that we have, this uh, longitudinal data. And I also want to look at changes over time. Uh, we actually receive more PFAS data now. So we have PFAS at baseline, and then 10 years later, we have another measurement of, of the same PFASs. So I, I also want to look at changes to see which PFASs might be going down and which PFASs might be coming up, right, to see if there's any that are potentially being used for replacement. And the kidney issue is, is an important one for us, and, and I'm looking into ways of looking at this. We haven't started doing any of the research, but in, in this cohort, in this study, we have uh, measurements of kidney function just because... Uh, because of the natural history of the study, they were monitoring kidney function as one of the parameters. So this is definitely an area that we want to go into. Uh, We haven't started working on it yet just because our funding is to look at obesity and diabetes. But that's something that we are planning to do in the future. Hopefully we can secure some funding to look at this. Looking more broadly, because we know it's a global issue, what would be three things that you'd like to see happen yeah, I think one of the first steps is to understand how big is the problem and where also, where is the problem. So I think biomonitoring is the way to go, right? So sampling of water 
uh, we do know that water is one of the major sources, especially contaminated water. So perhaps develop some policies to monitor the water quality, to try to understand if there's PFAS in communities. And, and if there is, then the second step will be to do some remediation, right? Because we do know that there's communities that have a big problem with this. They have contaminated drinking water. So I think monitoring, remediation, and the last step might be policy development, right? So if we know that the PFASs are coming from an industrial process, uh, then approach that industry and try to understand their process and see if they can be regulated out or perhaps they might be voluntarily facing out some of these practices as well. Like we've already said in this episode, at the individual level, it's impossible for people to monitor the TDIs and stick to them. We need our governments and researchers like yourselves to do the work so that we can find solutions. That is correct. And I think we have a very nice example, like the the lead example, right? It was everywhere. And now when lead was banned from gasoline, you know, population levels came down and there were a lot of cost benefits that has been calculated from that gains in IQ because we know that lead is neurotoxic. So perhaps this might be a similar story where big policies and commitments from several countries, not just at country level, but at the level of many, many countries, perhaps that can be instituted that way. What's happening in California as far as sharing of information? So I don't think right now sharing of data is is something that is happening as of now, but this is something that as a community, as a scientific community, things are moving forward to being more open about our data and trying to deposit the data in a public repository. So so right now, the National Institutes of Health, uh, NIH, which is the institute that funds a lot of the exposure health studies, they're trying to develop more guidelines so people deposit their data online. Some of the issue with the human data is concerns about privacy. So this is always a fine balance between making our, our data available to people, but also respecting confidentiality for human subjects. But this is a priority for the NIH, at least. That is a tough ethical dilemma there, isn't it? Because the epidemiological information and data is key, isn't it, to getting regulation in place? Yeah, I think the way regulation, at least, you know, the regulatory agencies like the EPA in the United States, they're they're moving heavily into relying on epidemiological data. You still have to have the toxicological studies on on animal studies or salt lines, but epidemiological data is heavily weighted once a decision is made. This is definitely an issue, and it has become an issue for other exposures like air pollution, right? There's a a wealth of data pointing that air pollution is a human health hazard, of course, but now the EPA here in the United States recently issued uh, a call for sharing of the data, which is almost impossible for some of these historical studies. When people were enrolled in the studies, they were told that their data was going to be kept confidential. So these are valid concerns. Now the way technology is, right, if you post data online, which is the easiest way to share data, you have a person's age, gender, potentially location, a big geographic location, whether it's country or state, you know, might become easier to identify that person. So this is always a concern. How do you feel about how the US government is managing PFAS? I know that there's been a lot of criticism of the EPA not setting maximum 
contaminant levels. Yeah, recently there was a review and I believe they didn't set regulatory standards, at least at the federal level. So that has been a little bit disappointing for those of us that have done quite a bit of research and and know the toxicity of it. Uh, But some states are more progressive in that sense. So some states have developed state-specific guidelines, at least for PFAS in water. We're not ahead of the game in any ways, but, uh, you know, remember the issue is that there's thousands of these compounds, right? If you regulate PFAS in water or even, you know, you set a level, testing level in blood, which ones are you testing, right? And most people are going to the PFOS and PFOA, which are the most commonly detected ones. Uh, maybe we're missing the ones that are important. What further areas of research do you think are crucial in humans? Yeah, this is a good question. You know, I think you know, a lot of us went after the metabolic outcomes, you know, like obesity and people are looking at thyroid function. And these are things that we can kind of capture within a lifetime of a study. But, you know, there's many questions that remain about potentially, you know, uh, carcinogenic effects of, of these PFASs as well that cannot be answered, you know, just with very long term studies. Uh, uh, so I think there's there's still many questions to to. To, to be addressed and, and, you know, whether the most pressing question is, you know, the metabolic effects, you know, in terms of obesity or, or hormones, you know, but also the question about potentially uh, cancer outcomes, which are very difficult to answer in, in, in studies that are prospective, right, because you have to wait a long time uh, to, to potentially see some cases and you have to collect a large sample of individuals as well. What kind of study design would be needed to find out if PFAS is causing health effects? What sort of study design is best? Yeah, so, you know, the gold standard, at least in human medicine and human studies, is to do a randomized trial, right? So you randomize people to an exposure, which in this case will be unethical. So this is why we cannot do a randomized trial for everything, right? Uh, One way that one could get around that is to actually do an intervention in the sense that, let's say you have two communities that are impacted or or a population that is impacted by PFAS, a potential would be to try to reduce exposure in a randomly selected portion of the population. So, you know, try to take steps to reduce their PFAS exposure for drinking water or other major sources. The other flip of the coin is actually reducing exposure in one group and then perhaps not doing anything in the other group. You'd have to monitor them over time, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. So it'll be a long-term study. And, you know, whether if you find a community that perhaps water might be the major source, then you can try to reduce exposure from the drinking water. But, you know, there's multiple lines of evidence. In science, we don't rely on a single study. Even if it's of high quality, we oftentimes look at several studies. And, you know, in light of the biological possibilities, so this is where the toxicological studies are important in cell lines and animal models as well. Do you see this problem in the field of research? Do you see this taking decades and decades to study these chemicals should they be banned as a group? You know, we're basically playing a game of whack-a-mole, right? So it's like, you know, banning one chemical, but then about 10 others show up that we don't know anything about. Uh, and this is the case with the PFAS. People are facing out the PFO and the PFOS, which were most highly detected. But now we have this Gen X, which is the next generation of uh, PFASs. And I think this is the wrong way to go about it. The phase-out is misleading because people think that they're not being made anymore or used anymore. But that's not the case, is it? Right. So we're talking about two very specific PFASs, which are PFOS and PFOA. Those are the two traditionally measured ones in, in studies and in populations. 
But you're right. So we didn't measure newly produced PFAS, so that could very well be on the rise. Uh, we don't know. Uh, and that's something, at least in, in the U.S., the National Health and Examination Survey might be doing pretty quickly to try to measure these new generation PFAS, the replacement PFAS, for which we don't have data on. Now there's more initiative in terms of trying to do green chemistry. So it's basically chemistry that is, is both safe for the environment and for people. Then again, I hate to come back to regulation, but this seems to be the most effective way. You know, I always try to make an analogy between these PFASs and air pollution because they're both very ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and, and we are all exposed to different levels of it, right? Even folks that perhaps live in, you know, cleaner areas of the world, they're still exposed to some levels of air pollution from combustion engines and, and other sources. So it's the same thing with PFASs, right? Is you know, we're all exposed to some level of PFASs, pretty much everyone in you know, at least that's what the data is telling us. So, you know, the most effective way is probably policy implications, trying to reduce exposure by banning them. But also I think now people are demanding products that are green. At least this is happening a lot in, in my state in California. And it's definitely true throughout the United States where people are looking for labels that are specifically telling people this product, you know, contains you know, only natural components or organic components, and it might not contain like artificial or synthetic chemicals. And the industry is going to have to adapt to those changes, right? You know, as an individual, it's always difficult to make changes, especially for some of these things that are everywhere. So I think policy implications and also, you know, society as a whole, as we start demanding products that are safer, not only for us, but also the environment, I think that's that's going to invoke change from industry as well. What's the level of concern that the general population should have about these chemicals? The, the level of toxicity is not extremely high, at least that we know of, you know, but we don't know what we don't know. So I would say the levels of toxicity are not extremely high, but how prevalent and how ubiquitous they are, you know, they're everywhere. That's that's the concern to me. So I, I keep going back to kind of comparing this to air pollution as well, in the sense that, yes, we should be concerned about air pollution. We also know it's bad. We also know it causes cardiovascular disease, you know, but still people are living on it. And, you know, we as a as, as society, we have decided that it's OK to have some level of air pollution and some cities are worse than others. So. It's the same issue with PFAS. It's just they're everywhere. Some communities have higher levels than other. You know, in terms of toxicity, there's other things that are more toxic that we know of. But in terms of the magnitude of the issue, how widespread it is throughout the world, I think it's concerning in that end. You know, with the PFASs, there's the extra challenge that they hang around for a long time, right? <laughs> so they're persistent. And, and even let's hypothetically say we stop making them, you know, how long are they going to be in the environment? Uh, if they're in water, uh, they're sometimes very difficult to get out of water. Uh, if they're in large bodies of water, then, you know, how can you clean up that water? That's another challenge. But you don't think the government should throw their hands up and say it's too big, it's too widespread and do nothing? No, definitely. I, I think, you know, it, we know, you know, for example, we have the two examples of PFOA and, and PFOS, the two majorly produced PFASs. We have human data, at least in the U.S. and other parts of the world, showing that levels are decreasing after, you know, 3M decided to phase out. So the, that chemistry, of course, they replace it with another type of chemistry for the shorter chain PFASs. So, so we know, like, you know, when industry decides to stop making them, levels start to come down in, at the population level. But then they're making new chemicals and those levels could be going up in people. Exactly. And this is where we're going back to that we're playing this whack-a-mole game, right? So you're, you know, you're getting rid of one, but then maybe 
10 or three others kind of pop up um, that we know nothing about, right? So I don't, th I don't think this is a good, smart way to go about things. I think we should probably be testing uh, chemicals before they're released in, you know, into industry uh, and, and applied widely like PFASs have been. That's a good point. Thank you for talking with me today. It's been really great to hear about your research. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. The Australian National University in Canberra conducted focus groups as part of the PFAS health study. They published their report about the focus groups on the 19th of March. Next episode, I will bring you a conversation with Professor Cathy Banwell, a co-investigator on the PFAS health study and the lead of the focus group study to discuss the report. They were concerned about their health and particularly their children's health, their physical health. In some communities, there'd been clusters of cancers and so on, and people were concerned that this might be due to PFAS. They didn't know. With that sitting over them, they were then concerned about property values, about the stress of dealing with it, the frustrations they felt. But I will also say this was certainly not everyone because there were in most of the communities, there were some people who thought a better approach was to say very little about PFAS because they were concerned that it might stigmatise the town, it might stop people from visiting, etc. Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.